welcome to School Psych Podcast. Really excited to be here tonight. We've got a lot of good things to be talking about, um, and uh, you know, happy to have uh, you know returning guests come on and the new guests, and so really, really fun stuff going on. But my name is Rachel. I am a school psychologist, and I am in the state of Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to my friend Rebecca, who is going to talk about how you can participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello, everybody. I'm Rebecca, and I'm a school psychologist in the state of Florida. And that's a new expression for me. So I stumbled on it. But yes, I am in Florida. <laughs> and I would love for you all to participate. We're so happy to have our live audience because the conversations that emerge in the private chat or in the not in the public chat alongside the video are so rich. And so please log into your YouTube account if you're watching us live and just comments right alongside the video. And even if you're watching the video later in time, you can comment and it syncs up to the timing and we'll see those comments comments later. And if you have questions for us, we can get them to our guests. So if you're not watching us live and you'd still like to uh, join the conversation, please do. And you can comment on the School Psych podcast page on Facebook. The event and a um, conversation uh, uh, comment section under the event is right on the page, or you can comment on School Psyched, your school psychologist. Also, the event should be at the top of the page right now. And on Twitter, comment at, at podcast psyched using the hashtag psyched podcast. And now I'm going to hand it off to Eric, who's going to introduce our wonderful guests. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm excited to have Drs. Kelsey Reed and Dr. Byron McClure with us this evening. And uh, if you've been a friend of the podcast for a while, you've seen Dr. McClure on a couple of times. He's been a recurring guest talking about so many incredible things. Um, and so we have his co-author of their new book, uh, Dr. Kelsey Reed here as well. So before we get started, I'd like to just tell a little bit about them so you know who our guests are this evening. So uh, Dr. Kelsey Reed is a nationally certified school psychologist who works at the elementary school level in Maryland. She graduated from Loyola University in Chicago with her PhD in 2020 and was the recipient of two university awards for her dissertation titled Investigating Exclusionary Discipline, Teachers, Deficit Thinking, and Root Cause Analysis. Dr. Reed also received awards for her dissertation work through the Society for the Study of School Psychology and the American Education Research Association. She's passionate about advancing educational equity for minoritized students, disrupting the school-to-prison pipeline, and identifying and implementing alternatives to suspension. She's presented at community, state, and national levels on school discipline practices and disparities, and has published in various journal articles book chapters, and community journals on topics such as restorative practices, school-based consultation practices, juvenile justice, uh, youth re-entry into schools, and school discipline reform. And we also have Dr. Byron McClure with us, and he is also a nationally certified school psychologist and founder of Lessons for SEL. He uses research and human-centered design thinking to build empathy, ideate, and co-create equitable solutions, which put the needs of people first. While formerly serving as the assistant director of school redesign at a high school in southeastern Washington, D.C., he reimagined uh, social emotional learning with a focus on systems level change. He ensures students from high poverty communities have access to quality education. He's done considerable work advocating for fair and equitable practices, particularly for African-American boys. He's designed and implemented school-wide initiatives such as SEL, restorative practices, MTSS, and trauma-responsive practices. He is also a nationally known speaker and speaks across the country and believes in shifting from what's wrong to what's strong. So welcome, Drs. Reed and McClure, and we are so excited to have you both here. And um, I know we want to talk about many things, but I, I would love to start uh, talking about your book. Um, Hacking Deficit Thinking. And so maybe we could start off by talking about how you two connected on this topic and um, and maybe a little overview of, of what the book's about. What is deficit thinking? Yes, Eric, thank you so much for, for that introduction. Rebecca, Rachel, 
as it was said, I just consider myself a friend of the show. What is is this number three, number four, <laughs> number five? Let's just keep it going. You know, let's just build it into the calendar. Uh, so thank you for, for having me back and allowing me to bring uh, none other than Dr. Kelsey Reed um, along with me so that we can talk about all things strength-based. And, you know, as you were reading Kelsey's bio, like, wow, like Kelsey is legit. And what's funny, uh, Kelsey and I, we actually met at NASP in Chicago. That had to be 2017. Yeah, 2017 or 2018. Yeah. So, so some time ago. And, you know, I was just walking by, do, 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 minding my business, like just looking around. And I saw this poster and the topic just like stood out to me, of course, because of my interest. And I was like, oh, this is really good. Um, and then we we talked for for a little bit. And you know, when you meet people and you like, this person like has it, whatever it is. And you know, from the research, from the understanding, um, it was there. And so I thought I was doing it at that point in time. And I was like, no, Kelsey is doing it. Um, and we we just stayed in touch. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll fill in some of the gaps, but Kelsey, yeah, I'd love for you to, you know, add anything to that I might've left out. Yeah. I'm going to give my perspective. So, you know, I'm standing out with the poster. Um, it was on school discipline reform, I believe. And I remember um, Byron walked up and he was like, Hey, this is really cool. We talked for a little bit and he's always been an entrepreneur, right? So he was in the middle of one of his projects, early project. And he was like, Hey, here's my card. Like we got to stay in touch. And we kind of just continued talking from there, working on projects and stuff. And um, yeah, then the book came along um, and here we are today. So you never know who you're going to meet and where that's going to take you. <laughs> and so what what led up yeah, to the book? So it sounds like, you know, you were, you know, corresponding and on the same page with a lot of stuff. So who, where, where did the book idea come from? I, I always am so amazed at people that, um, Rebecca as well, you know, that they have the ambition to, that just seems overwhelming to me. So what, what brought that on and how did that, how did that materialize? Yeah. And so if we think that was, you know, some time ago in Chicago, I mean, the book just came out last, depending on when you're hearing this October 11th. So, you know, there's a, a five, six year gap in between. And, you know, in that, in that space, um, it really was just, uh, learning the work of one another, uh, continuing to put the work in. Um, Kelsey, she uh, was a student at Loyola at the time, and she finished her uh, her research, her dissertation. And, you know, I, I nerded out, and I remember, like, reading through the whole thing, and I was like, whoa, like, I'm here at that point in time, you know, like, really talking and just, like, yelling and screaming to anybody who would listen if it was room with three people, I'm standing on top of tables, if it, you know, and I'm just talking about these things. And then I stopped and, like, read her research. And I was like, she's talking about deficit thinking. She's talking about all of the things. And, like, she added a teacher element into it. Like, it all just connected and made sense. And so, you know, Kelsey had mentioned the app. We were doing some things with the app, did some things, you know, shifting towards lessons for SEL. Um, and then I was approached by several publishers at the time, but it, it just wasn't a good fit. And then um, Times 10 Publishing reached out um, with the opportunity. Um, and at the time, it, it made sense. It was a decent fit. And if you're familiar with Times 10, they're the ones who put out the book Hacking School Discipline. And so they have an entire hacking series. And, you know, I I honestly was going to turn it down because I know my strengths. Like you put me in front of a microphone, in front of a room with people, like I can talk, I can go up to people, like I can do that. But you, you want me to write? Like, when is it due? 11.59 p.m. Eastern, I get it to you <laughs> right there. Like writing, I, I'm not good at that. And so I wasn't going to do it at first, but you know what? I said, hey, like, can I get a co-author? It was like, yeah. And I couldn't imagine this book being done with anyone else other than Kelsey because of the research of her understanding of the work that she had been quietly putting in. And, you know, I reached out 
And you know, she was she was in. So, so Kelsey, yeah, I'll I'm throw a it to you. Second year school psychologist, first of all. Well, let me back up because I do want to say that Byron is, and I say this all the time. I think he's one of the only other people in the world who have read my dissertation. So I appreciate that. You know, like I put a lot of work into that. So knowing that at least one other person has read it, you know, makes makes me feel good. Um, but yeah, he called me. It was um, I was in the middle of my second year as a school psychologist. So last year. And he's like, hey, you know, I have a really cool project. You know, I want to know. Like, And he's been hooking me up for a while with different projects and um, things to be involved in. And he's like, do you want to write a book? I was like, what? Like, we're on the phone. I'm like, a book? Like, about what? And he's like, yeah, like, deficit thinking, you know? Like, and I was just like, yeah, let's do it. I'm in. He's like, are you sure? And I'm like, I'm in. And then we met with the publishers and we kind of went from there and it all just, you know, was smooth sailing. I mean, I think Byron mentioned talking, um, using our strengths. So one of my strengths is writing. Um, and Byron mentioned his strength being speaking. So like, we really kind of like work together with those being our strengths to, to get the book um, done. You know, we, I have the structure, you know, Byron had the motivation, the determination, <laughs> like we put those things together and we had everything we needed to, um, you know, successfully get this done. That's so cool. And I'm just looking at it on Amazon. Um, and congratulations, number six in crisis management counseling, number seven in inclusive education methods, and number 25 in general anthropology. Those are amazing numbers. And so congratulations to both of you. The book is doing so well, and I can't wait to dive into it. So so tell us, like, how, how did you, what did you want to start with? What's the, what's the sort of hook? Kelsey, I can talk a whole lot. Kelsey, you want to start? You can get us started. <laughs> yeah. And so from my perspective, writing a book is more than just putting words and sentences and paragraphs and ideas down on paper. To me, it is sharing an idea, a concept for years to come. And my thinking was, what can I create and put out into the world that will make a difference? And it was this thought, you know, like we have to shift towards what's strong. And, you know, being in the field of education for, you know, at that point, the better part of a decade, there was just so much that just wasn't strong and you know, it was pervasive and it was deficit, just freaked in deficit ideology. And in that moment, I thought, you know, if I can leave anything behind, if I can you know, put anything out into the world, it's a new approach. It's an idea that we don't have to leverage the worst in people and that we might, we just might be able to see the best. We might see the potential we might be able to make a difference in the work that we're doing. And from, from that, you know, I had an idea. And like I said, reached out to the right person with Kelsey. And we were able to put a structure together, um, which was actually, it was, you know, Kelsey, that's her, her space. Um, with the hacking series, that was also another element because they have a format uh, with reframes and the structure that really helped us both as first-time authors but we were able to take the the big idea, you know, that Kelsey and I both kind of crafted together and put what Kelsey just, you know, like this is how we need to convey that message to the world and fit it within that existing structure. And now we have, you know, that that number one bestseller. So, yeah, and I think one thing that we really wanted to do is um not only, you know, we wanted to touch on all of the different spaces within education, but we wanted to be intentional about it. So it starts by giving you history. We thought that was really important to kind of set the tone, set the stage for how we got to where we are. And then we have um, different chapters that focus on different elements of education. So we look at, you know, special education, we look at um, school-wide, um, the school-wide piece. We look at working like one-on-one -on -one with students and um, we look at data. We talk about all of these different things, flourishing as an educator, and they all kind of 
come together to create this, um, you know, strength-based school where the whole entire school has been touched on all of the different elements of it to be strength-based. So, you know, we, we had to find that balance of bringing in the research, bringing in the, the history, the systems, but still making it practical. So I think that's why I love it is because um, it really does do both, I think, so well. Like it tells you exactly why you're thinking the way you are and like some things that you can do to change it like immediately. So really proud of it, how it came together for sure. This sounds like uh, the perfect school psych book study. And so I'm already kind of like thinking in my mind about yeah, different departments doing it or like, I don't know, Eric or Rebecca, we might have to do like a, a school psych podcast book study and, and do this. I, I like this. It's <laughs> very exciting. I love that idea. I think that's a great idea because I'm um, awaiting my copy and I can't wait to read it. But I'm wondering when you were framing the research, it sounds to me like positive psychology. Is that the body of research that you dug into? What kinds of areas of research? And, you know, there's so much that I think of, too, just in terms of sort of um, uh, cultural competence and multicultural, you know, what we think of as even sometimes as strengths often comes from one sort of normative sample that's not everybody, right? And so, yeah, tell us about what kinds of research you explored. I think Kelsey sees me like just trying to contain myself and not nerd out uh, too much. Um, but yes, Rebecca, that's exactly where uh, some of the theoretical framework comes from. Um, and this was in uh, several chapters uh, we pulled from the University of Pennsylvania in the work of Martin Seligman, um, who is often considered, you know, to be one of the, the pioneers, one of the founders of the field of positive psychology. And so through the works of Martin Seligman, the late Dr. Chris Peterson, um, and just that entire team, um, like they really did. And I call it the science because um, oftentimes this work can seem like it's just like feel good. Um, it's just like pie in the sky ideas. And what uh, Dr. Seligman was very clear, says, I am a scientist and everything I'm doing is scientific. And so we, we tried as best we could to pull from that uh, evidence base, from that scientific, you know, place to say like, there's hundreds and hundreds of studies that show, you know, when you can leverage your strengths, when you can tap into, you know, this model, like we can increase uh, positive emotions and engagement and relationships and tap into meaning and accomplishment um, in life, which is often missing, you know, from the human condition, but especially inside of schools. And so we really tried to call those elements out from uh, the framework that Seligman just so crystal clear laid out. Um, and we see that like, when you can do those things, it has strong impacts, even above and beyond, you know, drugs and pharmaceutical treatments and even cognitive behavior therapy. Like when we can leverage these principles. And again, Seligman says, like, I was providing inside of my private practice, like intense therapy, treating anxiety, depression, uh, traumatic experiences and the best that he could get people back to was this state of zero, of homeostasis. And he argues that there has to be more in life that we have to strive towards. And how can we get people from this state of homeostasis and pour into people so that now we're moving into flourishing, into thriving, into overall well-being, which we talk about um, in our chapter eight where we're not talking about flourishing in the space of education. But Kelsey, now we believe if we can leverage this strength-based approach, then we can tap into all those elements of well-being, um, of flourishing. So, you know, that's that's the model that we pull from. Um, Kelsey, please add anything. I know I'm just going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Continue. Do your thing. Um, I We also pulled from, so Richard Valencia is one of the first um, education researchers who talked about deficit thinking. He has a book on it um, in a revised version, I think, that just came out. 
Um, and then also Kurt Dudley Marling does a lot of research in um, terms of neurodiversity and kind of that being the flip side of um, being deficit thinking, being more, you know, he talks, he talks a lot about, um, you know, what that, what our special education space could look like if we were, if we operated from a neurodiversity approach. So that's kind of what our, I think that's chapter seven, six or seven, um, that talks about, about that piece. But one thing that I'm also really passionate about that kind of stems from the work of Richard Valencia is really, um, identifying the strengths of our students. I think it's something like we don't do that often, you know, um, and I'm talking even just at the classroom level, you know, our teachers, um, you know, we spend all of this time hyper-focusing on what they can't do, you know, they can't read, they can't do math, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, what can they do and how can we leverage that into their learning? And so that kind of goes into the neurodiversity space too. You know, we focus, hyper-focus on disabilities, on, you know, the quote unquote negative attributes of um, being disabled, but what strengths do, do our students have and how can we kind of support them in that way? So that's a huge um, piece as well. I'm kind of thinking of our traditional like psychoeducational evaluations, which are just, um, yeah. And I, I try to, to incorporate, you know, I ask when I do my parent interview, you know, after I go through and, and there's all these maybe concerns and things, I, you know, what are their strengths? What are they good at? What do they enjoy um, type of thing? I always remember back to grad school. Um, I had a professor who um, recount like, recalled a story of, oh, she had a friend who, whose child um, had a disability and um, she would share this report that was written by the school psychologist at the time and just how negative it was as kind of this example of what not to do. And, you know, all the highlight marks of all the negative things. And there was just nothing there that was positive and, and strengths to build upon and, and, um, and so I just will always remember that I think of, of don't don't be the psychologist that's going to write that type of report because it's yeah I don't I don't see that that's helpful. <laughs> and Rachel, that's one of the things that that we talk about, especially in, in some of the first few chapters, really in chapter one, like it's it's hard, and I'm guilty of that using myself as an example. And when we talk about you know, where does deficit thinking come from? There's a number of places where it, it stems from. One of those places being how we're trained in our graduate prep programs. And I don't think it's any fault of practitioners. We are trained in tools that have been designed to separate, to label, to classify people. Are assessments getting better? Yes, we can argue that. Are normative samples becoming more expansive? Yes, we can argue that. But at the core, at the foundation of some of these assessments that are still being used to this day, that we've been trained on as school psychologists, we're utilizing tools that have been trained to identify the worst in people. And so we have to be cognizant of the tools that we're using, how we're using them, what we're using them for. And then we have to be in a position to say, hey, what other tools are available? How am I using these tools? And how can I use these tools to actually benefit and improve outcomes for the youth who we're working with? And that takes work. It's not easy. It's difficult. There's a ton of barriers that might prevent people from doing that. But in this book, we, we're hoping, you know, just to push people's thinking um, to really consider all of these different elements. Something you said a few minutes ago, Byron, is uh, we don't have to leverage the worst in people. And that really just struck me. Um, I mean, that's sometimes what we do, right? And um, and just in terms of your, your mentioning, you know, this is, you know, we, we have tools that perhaps are getting better. We have, um, you know, tests that have expanded norm samples but we still have this system of funneling kids in to certain things based on weaknesses, right? So we're still under the same umbrella. Um, and and so in, in your book, you both noted um, defining deficit thinking as being a distorted, distorted lens that, um, you know, that sees the weakness in people. And I'm wondering, um, as school psychologists, what what are some thoughts that you you both have about um, 
clearing that lens and uh, and putting on you know maybe a new a new set of lenses or something to help us um, uh, think differently, turn turn around our approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I will say first of all, one thing that was really I think challenging for me in writing this book was that. I was also, like I mentioned, in my second year as a school psychologist. So I'm practicing, I'm kind of getting my feet wet, kind of just getting into the field and identifying all of these kind of, you know, um, negative things, you know, about, about the work that we're doing and kind of, so I had a, I had to kind of consciously figure out how I was going to operate in this system, even though I know that it's harmful, it's harming a lot of students. So I think um, just to kind of, this is kind of related to to the question you answered or the question you asked is that um, I started doing my best to, even though I know I have, we have to use these tools, you know, these are tools that we have to use in legally, you know, to identify if a student has a disability. So I started using a couple of very, um, specific phrases while I'm reviewing the results with parents. And I I would always say, you know, I'm about to, you know, read through a lot of numbers, say a lot of a lot of jargon that I think, you know, but I want you to remember that these numbers, this conversation does not sum up your child. You know, this is just data that we have to discuss um, in order to get them what they need. But we know that your child is a vibrant whole human being with all of these other, you know, capabilities and possibilities. Um, And so I kind of always at some point find some time to jump in and say that if it, whether it's, you know, the conversation is going real negative or I know it has the potential of going real negative. Um, So that's one thing, but I think um, the other hard thing for me that I think we can do as school psychologists has been um, when I'm consulting with teachers. So I think I hear so much of those deficit thoughts, deficit beliefs, you know, being stated out loud, when um, a teacher comes to me and they're like, oh, so-and-so is struggling in my class. Um, They can't do this. They can't do that. You know, so kind of finding opportunities to reframe that in the moment. So for example, and it's hard, especially right now, you know, especially like I, my first year working was the pandemic. So that's all I know is this just like crazy weird space of education. But I think you, you, you can't underestimate the power of, of language. And when we flip what it is that we're asking, and this was kind of the basis of my dissertation. So rather than asking, you know, um, for example, what is, um, what, why do you think the student is acting in this way? You know, like, why are, why are they doing this? You, you kind of, one thing that I learned that I realized is if I ask, um, you know, what do you think is the root cause of why they're acting this way? You get a different answer. And when you get to that answer, you know, people are more likely to understand what they can do to address it rather than answering with their feelings, you know, of what they feel, what they think is, is the, is the cause of the behavior, you know? So I think just in our consulting work, we can be so impactful as school psychologists, but it really is like at the core of education of of being like a deficit thinker. So you have to really, it's really hard. It's, it's, it's really hard for me even, you know, and I'm trying to walk the walk. Like I, you know, I wrote this book and it's really important to me, but I also recognize how challenging it is to fight against this narrative. Yeah, and I, I'll add to that, Eric, you had mentioned the distorted lens um, in the vein of deficit thinking. And um, I'm getting into like shades and glasses and different things. And I don't have them on now, but like my kids would get them and they would touch them and it would be like fingerprints all of it. And it would be like smudges and all this stuff. And I started carrying around um, this microfiber cloth to clean off that lens. Now, imagine if I put those glasses on and it's smudges and fingerprints, I can't see clearly. And so uh, my son might be holding up the number five, but I see the number three because I can't see clearly. That's what's happening in the space of education, maybe even in our personal lives, uh, on the workforce. We have begun to see things, the world around us through this dirty lens. And what we're hoping to do is clear that lens off so that we can see the world around us in a clearer way, in a more efficient way, in a way to where we are not seeing the limiting 
beliefs or placing limiting beliefs on ourselves. But instead, we're seeing the potential that's there because we can see clearly. And again, it can go back to, well, what's causing the lens to get dirty? Is it our graduate prep programs? Is it how we've been raised? Is it parenting? Is it society? Is it culture? Is it systemic? One can argue it's all of those things. And because it's all of these things that we're up against, like we have to intentionally do the work to make sure that we are reframing, that we are cleansing, that we have lens where we can see the world around us clearly. And that's where Kelsey and I, we start arguing for a shift in the way how we practice and go about doing education. And I think in, in hack four is where we really dig into the cognitive piece of it. So we kind of bring in cognitive distortions. And I know we just shared on Twitter the um, there's a, a deficit square that we kind of, um, you know, created for this book to represent how, you know, what this looks like and how it impacts our students. And um, what we have in there is distortions that we have as human beings. We all have distortions expectations that are um, that we kind of develop from those distortions. So it could be expectations of certain students, um, subgroups of students based on experiences we have of them, you know, not being able to be as successful as other students. So our expectations are lowered for some reason for a certain group of students. And that impacts our behaviors. It impacts how we interact with with students that we don't have high expectations for. And that leads to outcomes. So, um, you know, negative outcomes for students. So we have examples of ways that you can kind of disrupt that square, that cycle at each of those different levels. So, um, you know, there are a lot of opportunities to do so. It's just you have to be intentional about it and be ha- be in the right frame of mind where you are prepared and ready to challenge yourself because it's not easy. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, just thinking about the way we casually refer to students, um, you know, as maybe my, my free lunch kids, my title one kids, my impoverished kids, oh, my kids from that school. Um, you know, it clouds our thinking, right? It, it poisons our judgment um, when we look at those students, you know, based on one characteristic or their socioeconomic status or, you know, and, and we certainly know that um, people look at race, you know, and, and we have our, we bring our biases, um, e- even though people say they don't sometimes, um, it's, you know, it's there. And um, so many of those uh, things impact the way we we look at kids and the way we talk about them. You know, we we hear that um, casually in the hall or the faculty room or something. You know, so that's just a a, a good wake up call. Absolutely, and you know, I w- I want to make this real because I'm I'm with my school psych fam, and you know, most of us we're doing evaluations and we're we're giving assessments and we're reviewing the findings of these. 20, 25, 30, 35 page reports. And we have to keep in mind that we are working with real people, real families, people who have real stories, people who have goals and plans for the future, parents who want to see the best, who have big dreams for their kids. And when we're at that table, when we're at the IEP or ARD, if you're in Texas, And we are reviewing the findings of our evaluations and we are sharing news that your child is eligible to receive special education services as a student with an intellectual disability, with an emotional disability, with a learning disability, with autism. As a parent, that can be devastating. And how we're sharing, how we're delivering that news, in many instances, that can be the first time. And can you imagine going through these evaluations, clinically significant, elevated, high range, will never be able to do this, can't do that. Look at the deficit ideology that we are engaging in and the limiting beliefs that we're placing on people. Now, we also have to be aware of this as well. We are school psychologists who are in the business of using these tools to improve outcomes for the people that we work with. So knowing that, 
how can we have a holistic approach to where we are actually helping people with real challenges? And in this strength-based approach, we're not ignoring that challenges exist. Instead, we have to be psychologists and help families who have kids who have real-life challenges. But how can we do that in a holistic approach to where we're giving hope in these meetings? To where, yeah, little Byron has these challenges, but these are the strengths that he has. These are the social capital and resources that we're going to surround him with. And we are going to work on developing these skills. So by the time Byron is in high school, like he's participating in student government and uh, student council and playing football and, you know, getting ready for college. And once he's in college, like he's going to do all these different things and go out to be a speaker. And he's leveraging that. It's not that he can't pay attention. It's just that he has all these different things. So, like, we got to be able to remove some of those distractions and help him to focus in. And equip him with some tools. And, you know, he's not the best writer, but we're going to equip him with some people who can help him out. Right. Like this is what we're talking about. We have to be holistic in the work that we're doing because as school psychologists, we are in a position of power. And if we don't use it, if our lens is dirty and distorted, we can do damage to the young people, to the family that we're working with. But if we operate from a strength-based perspective, we can change the world. And I believe that deeply. Ugh, that's so beautiful. And I so agree. And I'm thinking as you're talking also about, you know, the, the incredible increase in the number of referrals every year. And it, it just seems as though our notion of what being successful in school is, is is narrower and narrower. Like there's one way to, there's like 10 kids that, that nobody's worried about. And then, so there's something wrong, right? And all these other kids who we, who we can collect data on and we can like find so intricately their strengths and weaknesses. Maybe it's not that, you know, everyone has their unique profile. And, and so like, maybe it's not the, that they're not one of the 10 kids that are, you know, no one's worried about it. Maybe it's just that we look at this unique profile and we leverage what's strong. I love that so much. And I, I wonder how we can apply it also to changing a system that thinks, you know, there's only one way to be successful. And that's what I love about the neurodiversity movement. And that is um, hack six. I know I thought about it. Um, it's hack six, not seven, where um, we really expect differences. We expect there to be students in our class who learn this way, students who learn this way, students who are growing at this rate, you know, rather than expecting students to all develop the same skills at the same time. Like, that's crazy if you really think about it, you know, and if we think about it that way, then we really can identify the each of the unique strengths that all of the students bring. And we talk about collective strengths. So that's another one. That's hack seven, where we're talking about, you know, when we look at students in that that unique profile way, we know that Johnny brings this to the table. You know, um, Jared brings this to the table. And how can we elevate both of those students strengths to make the classroom experience just that more meaningful, you know? I'm also kind of thinking about, you know, we talk a lot about, um, and, and it can be, I can be a little bit despondent about it, um, you know, the state of um, some of our curriculums and schools not using evidence-based practices and things. And I see a lot of students struggle. And in, in my mind, sometimes I wonder, you know, would we see the amount of students struggling if we used the science of instruction and we, you know, were able to provide these kids with with what they need and we get into this place where you know oh it must be a learning disability instead of like looking at the curriculum and and not seeing that and uh, you know um, one of you said something about um you know seeing the potential in students and so i think that that's important that like we can think about you know maybe we're, we're struggling right now but 
if, if we can get them what they need, what based on, you know, their strengths, based on evidence-based practices, based on how um, to set them up for success, that, the you know, the potential is unlimited. And I just liked that, that comment too about, you know, like looking forward and, and thinking how things could be if we can meet the students' needs. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Rebecca had, had mentioned Mara Seligman, and, you know, even in writing this and like just being a student of his work, like he really like he shared a story. Rebecca, you might have heard this story that Dr. Seligman talked about, but I think he had just released. He was either working on or had just released one of his first books. Um, well, one of his earlier books around authentic happiness. And he's talking about happiness and um, his daughter or his granddaughter, I believe it was his granddaughter, they were out like planting in the field and they were having a conversation about happiness that shifted his entire model. And uh, she basically was saying something to the effect of like, if you believe that people can't increase happiness, why are you so grumpy? And he was like, well, <laughs> like I'm a scientist, like, and I need to know that things are done a certain way. And he really started thinking like, happiness can't be the only element. Like there has to be something more to this model because happiness can be fleeting. What happens when that's gone? Like what else is there? What is it that people are striving towards? Is it, you know, to constantly be feeling good, which is that positive emotion? Is it relationships? Am I doing this for other people, for this collectivism? Is Am I doing this to have meaning in the work that I'm doing or a sense of accomplishment? And so Seligman really had to really, I don't want to say scrap, but continue to build out that authentic happiness model that he had, which then he shifted towards this PERMA, which is a model of well-being. And so now we're talking science, right? Back to the point that you're making, Rachel, like this isn't just some like, oh, we're going to hold hands and kumbaya. Like we have to get to the science of what works. And when we're talking about strengths and leveraging, leveraging that, we have to do so in a way that is meaningful, that is scientific. We have to draw on the evidence and from the practice base, because we don't talk enough about that, of what works so that we can actually make a difference for the young people that we work with. Yes, I love that story. Martin Seligman is really funny and uh, describes himself as as a, a sort of um, a grouch, a grump. Um, <laughs> but but what he found um, after speaking to his little one was that you can grow your skills of optimism, and it's a it's a practice. And and um, in the optimistic child, he did that study. He, um, he was able to go into schools and it's amazing work. And I, I don't see it being done so frequently, but to go into a school and see if you can teach a, a character strength or, um, a mindset strength, and then see if you can teach it, see if it sticks and see if it makes a difference for kids. And, and in the optimistic child, he found that kids, who were optimistic had better outcomes in the long term. So it's like really amazing if we all knew that with little kids that we could help them think optimistically. And then there we could also help them, you know, stick with something hard in school or uh, get over, you know, bounce back from difficulties or have better relationships, you know, like, shouldn't we prioritize it? Another question that I love that he always asks is he asks parents, um, what do you want for your child? Right. And everybody has things like, you know, health and happiness and a great relationship. And I want them to have a family someday. And nobody says, I want them to have a 4.0 GPA or a perfect SAT score. Yet, like, it seems as though in schools, it's kind of what we're hoping for, right? Like if they're not at the 4.0 or the, you know, even 3.5, then like, let's figure out what's going wrong and look at all the, the, the weaknesses, like you're saying. Rebecca, we can nerd out about uh, Seligman. So I love that study. That study was like super cool. Uh, but one thing I, I did want to say, and like Kelsey and I, we, we kind of go into this um, in our book and our work. Um, 
what I like, I, I call out some strength-based tools and assessments that we can use. And some of the work out of uh, Seligman's camp um, is the, the values in action um, that the VIA uh, survey. And like, that's one of the, I was using that early um, in my career um, with, with young people, even for, you know, some of the, the staff, like we can, we can do this. Like, this is a very real thing. And, you know, we don't have to be locked in into this very, very narrow toolkit that you know, we learned the whisk in graduate school and the bask and like, all right, that's our battery of tools. Like, no, there are other tools and, and we have to be able to, you know, tap into those. And I get the barriers and all of those things, but there are other assessments that are out there. And we kind of talk about some of those things in our book. I feel like I want to see um, an assessment from the two of you too. Like, yeah, <laughs> you wrote a book now go go make some more assessments. So we, so we have a whole kind of, yeah, strength-based battery. Kelsey, and stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yep. <laughs> I I will say you know and 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 Dr. Reed maybe you know being in Maryland too you can kind of um, you know see where I'm coming from here. But I always find meetings that we're looking at um, alternate curriculum to be especially difficult. And in Maryland we have this alt assessment tool you know, for, for students, if they're going to be on in an alternate class or with alternate curriculum, take an alternate state assessment. And it's the worst page that the state requires to fill out. I mean, it just talks about, of course, you know, you need a significant cognitive uh, disability or your cog needs to be below here. Your adaptives need to be below here. And there's all these checkboxes about, you know, the student could not manage um, in a regular curriculum. They, their needs are so, and it's just the worst, it, it just says it over and over and over again. And there's nothing on that form that talks about any type of strengths. And so I'm just sitting here, I, I hate those meetings. Um, because like you said, you have to like fill out the things and, and talk about those things to get student services that they might need. But it's just so draining, I think, for teams and for parents to, to hear all of this. And so just uh, this conversation, I'm kind of like thinking to myself, like, how can we as school psychologists advocate for paperwork like that to be changed, to be more manageable, to have some reflection on strengths and, um, you know, just IEP paperwork in general. Um, so this just getting my brain thinking a little bit. <laughs> no, you're right. And I think where it starts is this conversation we're having right now, right? Like we have school psychologists who are really passionate about this, who feel very strongly that this needs to change. So how can we advocate for this at the systems level? How can we get, you know, policymakers to understand that that language is very damaging to families? You know, how can we, you know, that's, that's where it all begins. And I think I'm hoping, or we're hoping that this book really kind of gets people talking about this being an issue so we can, you know, rise up and get it at the top, get them people at the top to hear, hear us and see if there's another way we can figure out how to qualify students for what they need. And I think a lot of it really does come down to, and I, I feel so strongly about this working in the schools that why, why is it that we have to identify a student with a disability in order to get them what they need? You know, why can't we just identify the needs? Why can't we identify their strengths and what they need and give them that? You know, and I know there's a whole legal component to it that's supposed to protect students, but it just, at our current state, is so negative that it just, you know, the language is powerful. Like I said, and that language that we're tying to what we're doing just really impacts people. Yeah. And look, I, I know there's a psychologist listening like, no, this is the way I'm going to practice. I'm sticking to the tradition. And you know what? Like, all right, that's your prerogative. But I want to be clear on what we're saying. We are not saying don't give assessment. Like, we're not saying that. We are not saying not to focus on student needs. What we are saying, and we want to be clear on, we must have a holistic approach to the work that we're doing as psychologists, as educators, as people in general. And what we can do is help school-based teams to create a holistic, comprehensive view of a child so that we can put in supports, services that can get that child where he or she, where they need to be. That's what we're saying.
That's really good. And, you know, I, I look at states, I, I want to say Iowa is non-categorical for special education. And I just think, why aren't the rest of us adopting that? It seems so practical. And when I talk to school psychologists who have worked in that state or who are working in that state, and they have a lot of positives to say about that approach, that just like you said, Dr. Reed, we're getting kids what they need, right? We, we don't have to go through all the, the process of labeling the same way that, you know, that the rest of us do. And not that we don't have to identify that a child has deficits in reading because we will learn, you know, we know how to teach uh, where the, the kids need those skills. Um, but we don't have to go through this whole sort of pigeonholing everybody, um, right? And, and, and we know the history behind, um, you know, uh, identifying certain things and testing was used to segregate, testing was used to um, funnel kids and adults into certain programs and away from other programs. And um, so, you know, our, our history of, of what testing was used for um, has certainly been problematic uh, in the past. So, um, it just strikes me as, you know, there's so many good ideas. Why aren't we moving in that direction as a field? So maybe we are, but very slowly. Very, very slowly. slowly. Mm -hmm. It reminds me too. I just wanted to chime in on that point, Eric, because I recently heard, uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes on a podcast and he was talking about the history of the DSM and how, um, who was it? Francis Galton, who was one of the sort of originators of categorizing and classifying um, people, it was a eugenic eugenicist. And, you know, like, so there's this very ugly history in how we label and identify deficits. And I think, you know, Dr. Hayes thinks we should just throw out the DSM, which I'm happy to do, especially after the uh, psychopathology class I'm taking this semester. <laughs> but uh, but I hear what you're saying too, Dr. McClurton. It's not that, you know, assessments aren't useful in identifying a whole profile of a child's vulnerabilities and strengths is not important, but it's just that we're so focused on what's going wrong. Absolutely. And, you know, we could, I think there's a Seligman reference for everything, but at one of his, I think it was when he was uh, APA president back in 2000 something. I don't know when it was, um, but he said like the field of psychology has been hyper focused on identifying the worst in people. Right. And like we have prioritized illness. Like We got to say that we got it wrong. And we can also acknowledge that APA, we don't talk about this enough. Why did APA issue an apology for their role in racism? Are we ever going to like talk about that? Like there's a real reason why the American Psychological Association. And <laughs> the American Psychological Association issued yeah. a, an apology on racism. Like, and then what? Second. You know, an apology and now what? That's it? First of all, right. you know, and the apology wasn't great to be frank <laughs> about it. And it was written in this like, whereas legal, legal language that like, didn't, I mean, didn't they read like Brene Brown, how to make an authentic <laughs> an apology? They're psychologists for heaven's sakes. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> the amount of harm for real that psychologists in the past have done that are currently doing, you know, we're still using, we talk about this in the book, a lot of the tools that were developed by eugenicists are still being used today in schools. You know, we don't talk about it like that. We, you don't learn that in grad school, but that's where they come from. They've been, you know, modified, updated, but it's the same ideas, the same things that we're looking for. Yeah. And we, we have to be aware of those tools that we're using so that we don't fall into the same trap and, repeat those mistakes um, willingly or unwillingly. Um, and we, we have to be knowledgeable and we also have to be knowledgeable of what other tools can we use. Listen, I'm a school psychologist. This is the, the school psych podcast. I have been out of the position of a school psychologist for two and a half years now. And I have learned so much about the field of education since I stepped out of the role 
the traditional role of the school psychologist, one of the most important things that I learned is that people outside of our profession view us as testing and placing kids in special education, that we don't do much of anything else. And for me to step into all of these different roles in different capacities, we have so much knowledge and expertise and potential of what we can do to impact the lives of young people. And we're not tapping into that nearly enough, nowhere near enough. So I'm going to scream, yell, advocate, do as much as I can so that school psychologists can have the knowledge, can understand that there are more tools that we can use. There are so many more elements of what we can be doing professionally to influence systemic change. And then guess what's going to happen? We won't have to be stuck in this box of only testing and placing kids. But listen, y'all, just let me be, just let let Kelsey and I help us to shift from what's wrong to what's strong. Like equip the world with the strength-based framework. And I promise in 10 to 15 years, right? Because now we're talking implementation science. In 10 to 15 years, the field of education will look drastically different. The practice of school psychologists, like we might do 5% testing. If we can follow this approach, we might do 5% testing. Guess what else we're going to be doing? Data, consultating, making decision making. Like we are going to do those nine other domains within that practice model. We're going to be doing all those other things because we can do those things and we won't see as much. We have been so focused on the reactive measures of our field. We forgot that an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of care. Why are we focused on preventative measures? We can do all of these things. And our book, Hacking Deficit, thinking like, Kelsey, we're pleading with the world. Let's do it. Let's shift to what's strong because we see a vision of where the world can be drastically different. So thanks for letting me uh, go off on that tangent. So I just feel so deeply about this work. I always feel like I've been to church when I talk with you, Byron. So, <laughs> and I don't mean to get religious, but I always feel like, like, preach, man, please. Yes. <laughs> Look, Aaron, you were going to say, preach, brother, preach. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> yes, I love it. I love it. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I know this is probably a topic for another podcast, but just as you were saying, Byron, um, and, and Kelsey, too, you know, these these tools um, have been used for so many, you know, devious, nefarious purposes. And if we, you know, we look back on a system that hasn't changed either, you know, our, our system, you know, we changed some laws here and there, but our system was full of, of racism and sexism and, you know, misogyny and, um, you know, the system hasn't really changed. We've labeled things differently. We've, made some different rules and laws, but, uh, you know, from my perspective, maybe we need to overhaul some of the the systemic issues um, as well. Um, and, you know, maybe we can all talk about that in another podcast, but, uh, but it just seems to me like, you know, we change little things here and there, or we, you know, accommodate things here and there, but it, we haven't really torn down some things that perhaps need to be torn down. I, th- I feel like, uh, yeah, after a podcast with you, Dr. McClure, like my, my face like hurts because I'm usually like smiling so much when you're speaking and the, just the message and the, the, the hope and the positivity and the passion. Um, it's just really just, I know I've said this before, but it's just contagious. And so I like, I feel like this is a good, it's a good Sunday conversation. And, you know, I've gotten, it's making me think about um, a lot of stuff and how to make kind of some small changes and then like 
eyeing up some of the larger stuff too. So um, that's exciting, but we are short on time. I think we're on the lookout for any last minute questions or comments, but I wanted to say thank you again for being so generous with your time, uh, both of you and, and having you on. And I'm excited for the book. And I think that the field of school psychology should be excited for this book. So it's really exciting. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for yeah, being our pleasure. here. And if anyone out there is going to be reading the book in the next few weeks, like I will be, and wants to have a conversation about it, like a book talk, like Rachel mentioned, please feel free to comment, message us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to continue this conversation while we're reading the book together. Yes, absolutely. And Eric, Rebecca, Rachel, thank you for, for having Kelsey and I on. You know, we we've poured a lot into this book and excited to, you know, hear the feedback from our colleagues, you know, across the field. Um, and I, I just want to shout out Kelsey. I mean, like she like she is like she's next up. So if you're a school psychologist and you haven't heard of Kelsey Reed, be on the lookout because she's like she's Stop. she's next up. So See, he always just be hyping me up and I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. And you all know yeah. Byron is amazing. And I'm I'm just so grateful to be in this space, to have been working with him, um, to have my my words, my knowledge elevated in such a way, I think is just so incredible. I'm just grateful to be here, grateful to have this book. It's right here in my lap. I'm just, it's just crazy. So, you know, thank you. And thank you, Byron. You know, you know, I think highly of you as well. Awesome. I think um, we'll say goodbye to everybody. I was looking at our schedule coming up. Um, I'm not sure that we have anything for, for two weeks from now. So maybe we'll, we'll, we'll have to ponder that a little bit, but then I know, um, Rebecca, I think you were excited for 1120 with ACT and OCD. Do you want to do a little promo for that? <laughs> yes, we're having Dr. Sedley, the author of Stuff That's Loud, um, coming on the show all the way from New Zealand. And I'm really it's a great book on OCD written for um, adolescents and young adults. And uh, I can't wait to talk to him about ERP um, in ACT and OCD, for ACT for OCD. All right, everybody have a good night and go forth on Monday and, and do some, uh, make some good positive changes and find the right. strengths in your students. Right. Good night, everyone. Bye, everybody.